you may not know this about me. In fact, if you didn't, it's okay. My wife didn't know this until yesterday. Uh, <laughs> uh, but when I was in middle school, I actually played tackle football once. <laughs> <laughs> on September 21st, 1994. And it's odd that I might remember that exact date, but that day something happened that was kind of unique. It was a Wednesday, and I wasn't playing in a stadium. I was playing in my neighbor's yard. And as I was handed the football, one of my neighbors, who must have been like 7, 5, and 4.30, uh, came up behind me <laughs> and tackled me. And just as he did, and as I went to the ground, I heard my right collarbone pop. I got up, ran over to my house, because I needed to convince my mom and dad that everything was just fine. And it's not because I didn't want to get in trouble for playing football or to get my neighbors in trouble, because they wouldn't have cared, honestly. But it was because that night at church at our youth group was our annual see you at the pool party. And I didn't want to miss it for anything. It was going to be awesome. There were going to be games. There was going to be pizza and Mountain Dew. <laughs> and it was going to be amazing as we sat and talked about all of the hostility that we faced at see you at the pool in the very anti-Christian place of Southwest Springfield, Missouri. <laughs> you see, I grew up in a space that was constantly telling us that Christians were under immense persecution, that we were going to be persecuted by others, even, even more intense than maybe being asked to make a website for a gay couple. <sighs> we were playing games like the persecuted church. And my youth leaders would say, okay, here's the deal. Uh, you all need to go hide maybe under a tree or in a small room, a closet, or in the basement or something. And we would pretend that the government was coming after us. And we'd either have to tell the government that we were Christians and face martyrdom or be like, no, 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 and have all of our friends make fun of us. And we liked it, honestly. I think we enjoyed this game. And I think part of it was because we wanted to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think there was also something about when you get a bunch of teenagers together and you cram them into a little closet or a little room, suddenly we find a lot about each other's uh, religion. We'll say it that way. And it was in this world, in the early 1990s, that something started called See You at the Pole or S-Y-A-T-P. And here's actually what their website says See You at the Pole is. See You at the Pole is a time of prayer on the fourth Wednesday of September when students meet at their school flagpole before school to lift up their friends, families, teachers, school, and nation. By the way, notice it doesn't say nations. Hmm. To God. It is student-initiated, student-organized, and student-led. Like a lot of the other things that we've been talking about throughout this series, about the, the weird things that happened in the 90s and early 2000s in Christendom, my goal here this morning is not to say that all of those things were bad. 
but rather to say that there are things that were good about them, maybe that we can reclaim, that we can say we're good, but maybe that we can grow from. You see, I think that prayer is still really a good thing. I think it's great when people get together and push in the same direction. I also think there are probably some areas where we've missed the boat, where we got good intentions taken over by some of the ways the activity played out. And honestly, we all do this in our daily lives, right? Like we start something with good intentions. We tell our boss that we'll stay a couple of extra hours to get a big project done. And before long, it turns into eight or 10 to 12, 15 hours every week. Starts with great intentions. And then before long, we don't recognize where it started. We're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at a story in the Christian Bible uh, in the book of Matthew, where I think that the same thing happened to a lot of those who were following after Jesus in the very first century. They were trying to figure this thing out. They were trying to do things that started off with a good idea, but ultimately might have morphed into something that was not only possibly wrong, but potentially dangerous. And we're going to start in the middle of the story and then kind of branch around it because this beginning, the middle of the story rather, is where a lot of the notion behind See What the Pole came from. It is from the book Matthew, which is in the Christian Bible, like I said. And we're going to start today by looking at chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, where it's quoting Jesus and he says this, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about something and pray for it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. This is true because if two or three people come together in my name, then I'm there with them. When I was growing up in youth group in the 90s, this was a verse we used all the time. And it might have been because our youth group was really small, like two or three people, and they were like, look, this is right for that reason. <laughs> but it might have also been that there's something really good about when you come together in groups and you share humbly to come together. But one of the things that I want us to think about this morning as we look at this is that when you look at stories in the Bible, or for that matter, any sacred text, it's important to understand a little bit about why those things were said. What's the context for it? So what we're going to do today is we're going to journey back to the beginning of this chapter, to the beginning of Matthew 18. We're going to look at like why Jesus would have said this, why they would have been having this conversation. And I want you to think about the fact that when the book of Matthew was written, that it wasn't like Matthew or whomever wrote it was walking around with Jesus, writing it down word for word as it was happening. They didn't record it on their cell phone and post it on TikTok to view later. They were just thinking about it. And honestly, Matthew was probably written four or five decades after it happened and probably was copied off of Mark. And so as you're reading this, I want you to think about the fact that the book of Matthew was written in the order that it was written to tell a larger narrative. What is the process behind this? What's the story behind this? They were written down for a purpose to construct an overall larger narrative about how they lived their lives, about how we can live our lives, and about how we can probably take things from the past, even an event like See You at the Pole, and not throw the baby out with the bathwater. So let's begin by looking at Matthew 18, verse 1, and it says this. At about the same time, the disciples came to Jesus asking, who gets the highest rank in God's kingdom? When you see a story like this in the Bible, or 
any sacred text, like I said, and it says something like, at this time, or therefore, a good thing to do is to look back, because things like chapters and verses weren't in the Bible when it was originally written. It was written as a letter. And so you might ask yourself, okay, so what, what was at this point? What was going on? And according to the story just before this, Jesus and his followers had just been walking through the town, and they'd been having a conversation because they had passed a temple, and they were talking about whether or not the temple should pay taxes. Seems like an argument that we have now, honestly. Should churches pay taxes? It's a conversation that people have. But it also sets the scene here to understand that in the context that they were having this conversation, they weren't thinking about the kingdom of God as some kind of like heavenly place. And in all honesty, they probably weren't even thinking about it as some kind of religious place. They were thinking about it as a very earthly governmental kingdom. And so what was happening here is that the disciples, who all saw themselves as equals, were jostling for position, asking Jesus, hey, when you become king of this area, or when you become the ruler of this area, who gets the best position? Like who gets to be the vice president or maybe something even really cool like an IRS agent? <laughs> One thing that will be important to note later though is that they weren't arguing about does it get to be my kingdom or does it get to be their kingdom? They were arguing about whether or not they got to participate in what position in it because they saw themselves as equals. And it's in this jostling for position that Jesus introduces the concept that we're going to spend the vast majority of our time in today. You see, as they're saying, who gets the best position? In Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4, Jesus, it says this, Jesus called a little child to him and stood the child before his followers. And he said, I tell you the truth, you must change and become like little children. Otherwise, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The greatest person in the kingdom of heaven is the one who makes themselves humble like this child. You see, when people are jostling around, seeing who gets to be number one, Jesus says that we need to be childlike. And I want to drill down here. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at this question about what does that mean? Because honestly, it's a difference that many of us, I think, have seen play out in our life a lot, and it's this. It's the difference between, are we moving towards a more childish state, or are we moving towards a more childlike state? And I think there's a real conflict that we often face in that space. Unfortunately, I think many of the characteristics that psychologists like Dr. Susan Heitler, who is a graduate of Harvard with a doctor from NYU, she describes childish ways in ways that a lot of times I think we relate to, that we see around us all the time. Dr. Heitler identified 10 behaviors that she says are childish, that she sees in adults all the time. Today, because I want to let you get out of here in time to get lunch, we're only going to look at two of them. But if you are curious about the rest of them, uh, in the Go Deep notes that we do every week, there's a full list of all 10 of them as well as some links to that to where you can have that conversation later. And we'd love for you 
to interact with each other and have that discussion. But the two that she talks about that we're going to talk about this morning are number one, blaming, and number two, the need to be the center of attention. And by this kind of what she means is this. When we talk about blaming, she says, you know, when things go wrong, young children look for someone to blame, whereas adults look for ways to fix the problem. And for the need to be the center of attention, it's a really simple question, right? Have you ever been at dinner with a two-year-old? <laughs> Everything's about them, right? It's hard to carry on an adult conversation while that's happening. And I really think that these are very different than the humility and the childlikeness that Jesus talks about here through the rest of Matthew 18. So we're going to go through the rest of the story today, and I hope that by doing this, we can see not only how things like Matthew and see what the pole can be kind of embraced and looked at in a way that may help us develop a little bit better, but also in ways that we can learn to live a little bit more childlikely instead of childishly. And that's the hope for today, right? So the first thing that she talks about between being childlike and childish is in the question of blame and fixing the problem. Now, I'll be honest with you, I was struggling a lot over the last several weeks to figure out what is a good example of this. And then literally this weekend, I saw it happen right in front of me. The last couple of weeks, my wife and I've had the opportunity to go to Wales and then Dublin, and it was awesome. Uh, but I don't know if you've been following the news, but there have been a lot of issues with United Airlines flying in. And we were supposed to be flying from Toronto to Denver to Springfield on United yesterday. We didn't, and we can talk about that later. <laughs> but as we were coming back from Dublin, it became pretty evident to us that there was going to be a problem. And if you've looked at the news, suddenly you realize that everyone was blaming each other for this, right? The millions of people who were stranded and thousands of flights that were canceled, initially, the airlines were blaming the FAA. Secretary, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg was blaming the Upper Brass at United. The Upper Brass at United was blaming the unions. And passengers everywhere were blaming people who had nothing to do with it, like the ticket agent and the flight attendants. And they were all doing so in the most public ways possible. And nothing was getting done about it because instead of talking to each other, they were too focused on talking about each other. I think that's really the difference between blame and taking action. As we continue on with Matthew 18, in verse 15, it says this. It says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out that offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, then you've won that person back. You see, the position of Jesus here is this. In a world of two equals, if one person sins against you, that you should confront them directly about it instead of calling it out to the entirety of the public. You should talk to them, not just about them. The story is a story of two believers, which, by the way, in that day meant a lot differently than it does today. When we think about what is a Christian today, sometimes it just means like, if I had to check on a box, what am I? You mark Christian or 
believer or whatever. In that day, to be a believer four decades after Jesus probably meant that you had sold everything that you had and you were living in communities with only other believers. You had everything in common. And it was a lifestyle choice, so much so that they had full investment in what was going on with each other. No one was trying to exert power over each other. And so what it says is, in that instance where everyone is equal, if something happens, you should talk to the person directly about it. The word, by the way, here for when there's an offense, when there's a sin, uh, is a Greek word, uh, hamartisi. Uh, and it is a word that comes out of the Greek word meros, which actually means like your heritage or your destiny. And the beginning of it, the ha, is kind of the opposite. Like it's the same way that we would use the letter A in front of a word to mean the opposite. Like ahistorical means not historical, right? Atheist means not believing in God. And what happened here is that when they say that they were sinning, it basically meant that they were missing the mark of who they were. In other words, what Jesus was saying to them is that when someone is around you and they're not being themselves, like they're not being who they were created to be, and that is happening in front of you, they're not doing what they need to be doing, that you should talk to them directly about it. It's not about us just sitting and stewing about it, though, either, right? Because a lot of people saw that happening this weekend around the flights. They were frustrated, and they were letting it pent up, and then as soon as the flight attendant came by and asked if they wanted coffee, they yelled. And that's not at all what it looks like to be childlike. That's what it looks like to be childish. You know, I kind of imagine that it's kind of like how it is for Morgan sometimes around me. I don't know if you all know this or not, but before I took the position here as the associate pastor, for the majority of my life, I have been a debate coach. And if you can ever be, imagine being married to someone who it's their job to teach people to argue for a living, <laughs> feel very sorry for Morgan and come up and give her a hug at some point. She probably, well, not just probably, deserves it for sure. <laughs> and the reason is in part because every time we would have a disagreement, I would expect her to engage in the disagreement the same way that I ask my students to engage in a debate round, which is come up with your answer right now. That doesn't work. <laughs> and so a few months ago, she came to me and she said, Chris, when we're having a disagreement, it would really help me if, if I could just call a timeout and let us just go opposite directions for like five minutes even. Let me gather my thoughts, and then we'll come back and talk it through. And at first, it was very hard for me, right? As a debate coach, no, we need to have the answer right now. But she called me out on my offense of not living into my best life for her. As equals, she was saying, look, you're not helping our marriage here. You're hurting it. And by her doing I didn't get mad at her for saying that. It was a place that she could come to me, and I could, oh, that's a place that I can grow. And I will tell you, like, with all the travel stuff and tensions going up, this weekend was a great proof of that. And we were able to walk through some disagreements to where we could ultimately solve some of the problems. Ultimately, that was something that required courage for her to come and say, that's not working for me. And sometimes it does that. But ultimately, it worked out. And let me just note this really quickly before we go any further. One way that this verse has been used incorrectly has been as an attempt to try to tell people who are in violent or bullying situations 
that, it's, that you should try to stay with that person. Just talk. No. Full stop. That is not what this is about. If you are in a situation where violence is being committed against you or there's a hierarchy against you, talk to us. We have a huge line of counselors that we are happy to put you in contact with. We want you to get help. You do not need to be the person who is just allowing yourself to be, uh, have violence committed against you. That is not what this verse is about. Okay, so full stop. That's not what it's about. But what it is about is the difference, I think, between childlike and childish faith. You see, childlike faith, childlike actions didn't confront them in front of everyone. Jesus says, like, if you have a disagreement, go to the person directly Talk to them about it. And if they say, okay, then you've won that person back. Now, it does have some other instructions later about like if they don't listen to that, how to go on from that. But if you read it, it never says go to the whole world and blast it on Twitter. Childish faith, on the other hand, tends to show up in creating enemies of who we aren't. It's blaming the ticket agent for the fact that our flight isn't happening on time. Or, and I don't believe that any of us have ever been guilty of this before, but yelling at a customer service agent on the phone because of something that's happened problematically. It's always bananas to me, by the way, that people tend to blame those who they aren't for the problems that they see. The number of male pastors who blame women's rights for the downfall of things, the number of straight people who blame the LGBTQIA plus community for problems, the number of people in faith spaces who blame people who they aren't, because it's really easy to see what we perceive as flaws in other people, but it is very hard to say that there is something wrong with us, right? We should celebrate the differences. We should celebrate those things. It's one of the things that we love here at the venues is that just because June is over does not mean that pride celebrations end here, by the way. It's a 12-month celebration here, y'all. I'll be honest. It, it seems to me, and I could be incredibly wrong here, by the way, but it seems to me that the choice of yesteryear for people to gather around a flagpole and say, we really need to reclaim schools or now school boards from specific ideas or for specific religions may be part of the same ideas that are now fueling what we now see around us as the rise of Christian nationalism as part of the process Bart Bonikowski, who's an associate professor at NYU, says it this way, Christian nationalism in the United States is exclusionary and nostalgic. Seeing the nation as going downhill and needing to be recaptured by people who see themselves as its rightful owners, possibly through authoritarian means. They argue that everything people see as going wrong with the country is part of the same problem, which can be blamed on non-Christians. See, it's very easy to blame the other. I love the last verse of the beautiful song that Joey sang earlier about looking into the immigrants' eyes and seeing how beautiful they are. Maybe 
the notion that Jesus is talking here about, about being childlike, is saying humbly, there are things that I can fix in me and that we can fix in us instead of looking out and saying, I have this thing to pick with you. The second area that we're going to look at today of childlikeness versus childishness is the desire to constantly be the center of attention. Now, it's very easy for us, honestly, to try to jostle for attention and to try to say it's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what's going on with the way that we think things should be. And we oftentimes talk in ways about how things that are changing don't benefit us the way the old system used to. People look back and say, but it was better when... Because we tend to believe that it's all about those who have historically been privileged instead of what Jesus is saying here, I think, that is maybe we need to be thinking about those who have historically been marginalized. Earlier, I read Matthew 18, 19 through 20. I'm not going to read it again, but I want you to notice here that it doesn't say that they were coming together around any kind of an agenda. It also doesn't say they were coming together around a religion or an orthodoxy or a set of beliefs or a country or whatever. What it does say is that when people figure out that there is something that they can come together around over all of their divisions, that there's something really powerful about that change. The Bible talks often about how God is love and how Jesus is the human embodiment of that. When people come together in the name of Jesus, in the name of love, there's something amazing that happens. And it's honestly the reason that I still believe that there's something good about the church writ large. There's something really special about having people who don't agree about anything else come together to see the CEO of a company join arm in arm with one of our unsheltered friends and march down during Pride Fest because we believe that everyone deserves rights. When a Republican and a Democrat can sit side by side and break bread at the communion table and say, the Christ in me sees the Christ in you. I'll be honest with you. I think there's something addictive about that. There's something healing about that. There's something that our sign outside says this, that we're not for everyone because we are for everyone. And if we really believe that, it has to mean that. And it's honestly a big part of why we're getting ready to start back up this Thursday night with something that we're calling more than at 425. Each week, we're going to come together on Thursday nights down at 425 West Walnut, and we'll have a time together where we have a short chat, some food. We spend some time hanging out with each other. And the reason is because we believe that there is this deep breath that we sometimes need midweek. That there's a lot of stuff going on, but when we can come together and say, we can gather around the name of love and humbly say, we don't get it all, but you get things that I don't get, that there's something good and holy and sacred about that. Each week, it'll be a continuation of the discussion from Sunday morning. So whatever Philip or myself or whomever is teaching that morning talks about on Sunday, on Thursday night, we'll continue that conversation. We'll show some different mediums, maybe a, a type of way to engage with sacred text, maybe a movie or a book club or a, a television show of some sort. 
The goal will be to help us process what's happening in a safe place that we can ask questions, which, by the way, is part of the reason every week that we have a Q&A period, right? At the end of the service today, if you have any questions about this, if it's space, we'll answer them here. If not, right after the service, we're going to have a time where we talk about Q&As that you might have about more than right here in the, thing, in the auditorium. But part of it is also we want to have more than just small talk, right? We love seeing you on Sunday mornings. We do. But we also know that sometimes on Sunday morning, it's hard to have much more of a conversation than how's the weather and do you think the Chiefs are going to win this afternoon? Which during football season, the answer is yes, probably. But the thing is, if you leave here and head down to go get your kids and maybe make a Costco run or do whatever you're doing, it can be hard to have much more of a conversation than that. And we want Thursday nights to be a space where we have that conversation with each other. Our goal is to provide the middle ground where you're able to have discussions that are more than just small talk. But we also know that it's not the end point, right? It starts each week at 6.30, and it ends each week roughly at 7.30. But we want you, after that, to have an opportunity. Go down to Springfield Brew Co. and grab a beer, or go down to Greek Belly and grab some falafel, or go somewhere, or stay hanging out and just talk. Because we think that's good to have those conversations. And this is, I think, actually, though, where some of these things are the right directions, where sometimes I think that things like see you at the pole and sometimes the people in Jesus' day here in Matthew miss the boat a little bit on this, right? Because childlike faith says that there's something much bigger than we can do individually when we all come together humbly. It's where I look and say, I don't have it all figured out, and maybe you don't have it all figured out, and maybe you don't have it all figured out, but when we come together, we still don't have it all figured out but we can lean into each other. And together, we're more than the sum of our parts. Child-ish faith, on the other hand, and this is, I think, one of the most scathing critiques of See You at the Pole, always sees itself as the end point. That's what we're focusing on. The goal is to be seen, to congratulate ourselves. Hey, great job, you did it, you did the thing. R.C. Wilkinson, who's a pastor in Alabama, says it this way. He said, see you at the poll is an annual event and youth pastors across the U.S. encourage their students to be brave enough to take a stand for Jesus and to come out as Christian. It's often presented as a radical countercultural event and students are warned that they might suffer persecution. Do you know what happens? Not much. There are no protesting groups of liberal atheist Satanists. The whole thing lasts about 20 to 30 minutes and everyone goes about their day. Christian teens are congratulated for taking their brave stand for Jesus. Some Christian groups have declared schools hostile territory and breeding grounds for every societal ill. It doesn't take much looking around at the news to see that this seems to be the battleground for a lot of people, that they believe somehow or another the school is this place that needs to be reclaimed, that it would be awful if we taught ideas like inclusion or equity. But ultimately, I don't think that's the type of faith or the type of life that Jesus is talking about us having. You see, the child-ish faith of needing to be the center of attention is juxtaposed with the child-like faith of needing to approach the whole conversation humbly. When two to three people come together in the name of love, in the name of Jesus, there is a space, like I said, where we can lean in on each other. 
But fortunately for us, the story does show an example of this, of what this is supposed to look like, I think. You see, just when Peter thinks he's got this whole thing figured out, he comes to Jesus and asks a question. Hey, I got it. I figured it out. And I want you to see what Jesus says to Peter here. In Matthew 18, 21 and 22, it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, when my fellow believer sins against me, how many times must I forgive them? Should I forgive them as many as seven times? I have to imagine Jesus kind of like taps his fingers and answered, I tell you, you must forgive them more than seven times. You must forgive them even if they wrong you 70 times seven. Here's the thing. I think Peter does a lot like what we do in this type of situation, right? We think we get a little bit of this like love thing. We think we get a little bit of like, we've got this thing figured out and we're like, got it done. No more work. We're solid. We're finished. And it's why this process is hard though. Because when we think that we've got this whole thing figured out, I think Jesus sometimes says to us, yeah, you're moving in the right direction, (laughs) but my love is so much more radically inclusive than you can imagine. It's the part that I mess up, I think, a lot. I start thinking I've got this spiritual world under control, and then I remember that if God's love is big enough for us, it includes it being big enough for everyone, period. That if we're going to be a church for everyone, that we have to be for everyone. Even the person who shows up at our 4th of July celebration wearing stuff that we don't like. It's the reason here at the venues, and listen to this very carefully, that we are not welcoming to the LGBTQIA community. We're affirming. Because it's not enough just to say you're okay to be here. It's only enough to say that you're affirmed, that you're loved, that you're cared for, that you are awesome and beautiful just the way you are, and we love you. (laughs) It's the reason that Philip has a shirt that says radically inclusive, (laughs) and I think that's the point. But it's also where I think we miss the boat on things like see you at the pole. It's great when people who are followers of Jesus get together and do things, but when it becomes exclusionary or when it becomes something that doesn't foster a sense of love to other people or a sense of forgiveness to ourselves or to others, or it fosters a sense of revenge, it's missing the boat. If your religion is doing something that is causing you to be exclusionary or to not be kind, maybe those religious systems are childish. However, If your religion, if your faith is pushing you to be more humble, to be more kind, to be more inclusive, maybe that's the type of religion that Jesus was saying is childlike. And maybe, just maybe, that is part of the unrealized hope of things like see you at the pole, is that we can move to being more inclusive. 